Yes, it's our wrap of uh, the big stories out in the markets. Joining me tonight to, to take a look at some of these stories is uh, analyst out at APSA Asset Management, Roy Mutoni. Roy, always a pleasure catching up with you. Good evening. Welcome. Good evening. Thanks for having me. How are you doing, man? I'm doing okay. Huh? The, the markets aren't treating me too well, but um, I think I'm not alone in that world. Okay, okay. Well, look, I mean, uh, we'll have to... We'll have to make sense of all of that. Uh, we are in a very, uns- well, I guess a moment defined and characterized by a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, it's certainly weighing heavily on the markets. Uh, but um, I guess another area which is dealing with a lot of uncertainty and flux is the mining sector. And I want us to take a look at some of the mining production numbers that came through from StatsSA earlier on today. What do you make of these numbers? And I guess I get the point around the constraints. Uh, but also, what do you make of the price environment? Because if indeed it remains favorable, the opportunity cost widens every single day of uh, lost cargo. So, so you're, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the bright spark of all of this was the fact that pricing saved us. Um, and, and the biggest complaints that everyone had historically has been when prices do well, we don't have the volumes. There's no difference. Actually, this time it's probably been worse because what we've seen is in our key commodities, iron ore, coal, um, and, and platinum as well, um, the miners themselves have actually styled up. They have less debt. They've invested well enough, and they have the ability to export good volumes into great prices. But unfortunately, our our logistics sector, particularly the government-related one around the railways and the ports, hasn't hasn't ha- hasn't played ball. And what we've seen is that we haven't. Well, initially we benefited from the pricing. Now that the pricing has gone flat, sideways, or marginally down, we can't benefit from volumes because we are unable to respond. So, so the mining production numbers exactly reflect that. Everything is going against the mining sector, whether it's load shedding, which means they have to invest a bit more in terms of backing themselves up against what ESCOM's going to do, or um, the, the transmit problems, which means they can't shift production mm. from the from the mines to the port, or at ports where they can't ship it from the port into the ships. Um, and then that's all compounded by the fact that globally we've got this supply chain constraint, which means we don't, even if we were able to overcome all of this, we'd still have an inability to move it to the end market. So it's sad um, and and it's difficult to deal with, but that that's exactly where we are right mm. now at this point in mm. the cycle. And mm-hmm. and I guess w- when we look at this basket, because we know, I mean, mm-hmm. not all commodities trade the same, not all commodities uh, in South Africa have mm-hmm. quality ores that, you know, can be taken, um, you know, to some of the best markets in the world. And mm-hmm. um, and I'm quite interested in your thoughts. I mean, the fact that PGMs and gold are leading the charge in terms of declines in production. Mm-hmm. What signal does that give us? So so the problem with, with gold is basically that we've gone so deep that it's very difficult to get productivity there. Mm. Um, it's 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 um, we're 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 down in the kilometers. So I mean, it's fantastic technology. Make no mistake, but the reality is that becomes very high cost, and it means we increasingly need higher prices, and our ore bodies are getting depleted. So so regardless of what happens globally, we know that's a dying industry. 
from the PGM's perspective, we're actually not bad. We've got reason, we, we're, between us and the Russians, we supply the whole of the world. But our problem is that because of the global downturn, the uncertainty around um, EVs and all of that, the demand cycle has fallen. And, and within PGMs, you have to be very careful because um, it's all about, it's, it's platinum, it's rhodium, it's palladium. Um, it's, it's about the industries deciding what balance they need of each one of them or whether they'll thrift from, if they use P, uh, platinum and it's become too expensive, maybe they use more rhodium. What we've seen is that rhodium was the most popular one Prices ran quite aggressively. Then they tried to move to platinum. But in reality, global growth has declined. So the reality is that um, demand has fallen. So, 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 so we suffer at the end of the day. Um, if, if global growth was there and if this transition, to, 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 if this transition was, was happening, then we would be the winners. But we don't have global growth. And even for the little demand we have, we are unable to deliver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing I'm, I'm quite interested in um, is your own assessment. I mean, you would have heard over the last few days or so, as we talk mm-hmm. about the constraints confronting the mining sector and its ability you know, mm-hmm. to export ores out into key markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the guys who's quite high up in the Consumer Goods Council and also the CEO out of, uh, or chairman of the board of Pick and Pay, uh, Gareth Ackerman, saying... You know, give give us the private sector the capacity to run these things, especially the Moy, uh, you know, um, uh, Moy Plaza uh, mm-hmm. uh, toll route there on the N3. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we'll be able to run some of this stuff. Um, and I don't know. I mean, your thoughts on this, uh, um, Roy? I, I sometimes do think there's a, a significant oversimplification to, to of what's associated. Too with it. Mm. It's too easy to say that, and to keep on saying that the private sector has the answers. These issues are complex, and they're long-term, and they reflect on um, the structure of our economy. Mm. So, 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 so here, here's the problem. The, the, the problem is um, the private sector does pay its taxes. Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've seen that. And the whole point of these taxes and the ability of government to borrow is that they can invest in infrastructure, which should facilitate all of this. Now, what we've seen is that um, the public sector wage bill has grown, but public sector investment has declined. Mm. So, 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 so the real question that should be asked is, shouldn't we be harder on government around what it's doing with regards to investment in infrastructure, rather than yeah. thinking that because right now we can, we can capitalize on this, let's, let, let's, let's overlook what the workers are saying and pay them their money and make ours because we'll make more than they do and, and life goes on. The, the truth is we need to ask ourselves the really hard questions. Why is it that the railway infrastructure is so dilapidated? Mm. Why is it the ports have not um, expanded in terms of capacity, and and call government to 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 reason and ask yeah. them why? You know, Roy, it's so interesting that you raise that because um, in the last two meetings of the MPC, the governor mm-hmm. flags mm-hmm. this issue of anemic or you know non-existent public sector investment, and maybe non-existent is not the word, right? But it's no, not at exactly the levels. The yeah, it's not at the levels that I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, one of the things that we see, certainly with an uh, ESCOM and even Transnet, uh, chickens mm-hmm. are coming home to roost for decades of underinvestment in your capacity. So, so you kind of have a situation where you should be 
giving the economy a counter cyclical push with the investment now but you also yeah. understand that if you don't do it now uh, the effects 10 15 20 years down the line uh, might be too ghastly to contemplate no absolutely i mean without belaboring the point it keeps coming up whether it's water electricity mm. or rail we, we keep being told there's too much demand there's too much use of of the resources yeah, yeah. The, the fact is the population grows the yeah, economy right? is growing let's do this hold the line there for yes. me i'm going to pick that up on the population growth comment you're making okay 17 minutes it is before 8 p.m. roy motoni from absa asset management is my guest as we take a look at the biggest stories out in the markets and i think roy you're making a very important point there before we went to the break and uh, i think it bears uh, some repeating there uh, the population mm-hmm. has grown demand has grown uh, but yet whenever we think about what contributes to improving the supply of public goods which is investing in them in the first instance it seems the responses get a bit patchy there No absolutely so 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 demand is growing because the population is growing and that's a natural normal thing that that we expect but then when when we have these problems burst pipes poor infrastructure and everything we're told it's demand that's a problem the reality is that um government's grown um its wage bill hasn't invested um and now needs to account for it and then we'll all go out and say no the workers must not be asking for all of this because they're all struggling but the truth is they they're out there doing as good a job as they can but they don't have the tools and the infrastructure is not being invested in so we're all suffering they just want a fair wage we just want the service but the problem is coming from the the political will power and the political willingness to think beyond um election cycles yeah and i guess that's that's the problem um roy that sometimes there's a seeming you know short termism even in the perspective uh, of many and i always say in as much as we can say the private sectors on an investment strike as many people often suggest large cash balances aren't being invested in the real economy Uh I think we need to lump in SOCs and municipalities in the same mix uh of uh, a broader investment strike in our society and probably a lot more uh because the type of economic and social infrastructure they invest in is critical to whether our lives are bearable or not and uh, I think you know we're certainly hurting the mining sector hurting agriculture at the moment but um uh I think there's uh, so much there talking about agriculture Botswana has imposed an import ban on fresh produce. Talk to me about I guess what has given rise to this and uh, sounds very much like what we talk about here in South Africa, localization, protecting our own local industry and they're saying they want to protect their horticulture. So so to me I look back and I say it's it's basically the grass isn't always greener. So as <laughs> it's done a hell of a lot and it's done a lot of work in terms of improving its exports in terms of vegetables and citrus and all of that mm. and they've done incredibly well both internationally um overseas and also around local local countries local neighbors now botswana has looked in and said we've got the same climate we've got the same soil why is it that these guys are selling to us and we can't invest in it so So then they say the first thing they say is no we're not going to import we're going to support our guys but the reality is it takes time it takes a regulatory framework it takes financing it takes a lot of stuff to set up these industries um and and also from the consumer perspective the honest truth is the consumer just wants the product 
they're willing to pay for it. It's at a reasonable price, um, reasonable quality, and they're willing to rely on South Africa from it, for it. So over the short term, the consumer just wants his product. Over the longer term, the government wants the, the, um, the producers in the country to take up the supply. So there must be some level of balance and some level of consideration. You can't just come in and say, no, let's close our borders to it. We're not encouraging our neighbors. We, we can do it ourselves. You can only do it yourselves when you set up the enabling infrastructure. And exactly like you say, that's the same problem here as well. Short-sightedness. Yes, it's a good idea to produce it yourself, but in reality, it may take a bit of time for you mm. to actually build up the capacity to do it. And, you know, I guess the, the other element to this um, is, in this case, we're all in the same customs union. Um, and Absolutely. Yeah, so, so, so there is a bit of a dynamic there, but, uh, I mean, just your thoughts on that. You see, absolutely. It's one of those things that absolutely saddens you because you figure you're in the same region, you share the same ports, um, and and collectively you can actually have an agreement that benefits you all. But politics comes in. No, um, some of the politicians on those that side don't want to be seen as being overly dependent on on their neighbors in South Africa. But the same people might actually be happy to get the same stuff from China mm, or mm. or places such as that. So, it, I guess it's you could call it misplaced priorities or political considerations to things that actually should be a lot more sensible. So. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a difficult call, but I mean, from a consumer perspective, you just want your goods. You you just want to be able to buy reasonably priced fresh produce, and the closer it comes from, it, it comes from, the easier it is to achieve that. Mm. But but politicians have a great knack of complicating everything. Yeah, indeed they do, and I guess mm-hmm. uh, many out in uh, Asia will be ruining the day where there was a fallout between Chairman Mao and. Uh, Chen Kai-shek, uh, who, who both, I guess, became founding fathers of their countries, mainland China and Taiwan, respectively. Uh, mm. Because, I guess, in many ways, this is why, and alongside the semiconductor shortage of uh, recent times, uh, mm-hmm. it's what might have also heightened a lot of geopolitical tensions. I mean, we speak a lot about Russia and Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. but I often think, um, you know, probably the next site of a lot of this is uh, potentially might be uh, on that street. So, so technology is so critical and for everyone across the world, um, whether it's your cell phones, internet, and everything. Um, and it's over, over time, globalization has meant that um, production has been concentrated in Taiwan and places like that. But now that globalization is taking a bit of a step behind, people are asking questions. Mm. Can can the West rely on the East for its production? Can the East depend on the Western markets for, for, for capital? Um, and that's, that's what makes it all so difficult. And on top of all of that, during the time when we were going through COVID, demand for these semiconductors was so significant because we were all at home. Mm. We were all, everybody wanted to have their TVs and their iPhones and everything that um, you produced a whole lot, it went into inventory, but now you can only have so many TVs, you can only have so many phones. So there's excess inventory in some places. Um, Demand is not as great as it was. 
So there's, there's, there's a bit of a problem around how do you forecast it? Where is the investment supposed to go? Because the U.S. now wants to bring investment back into the U.S., but demand isn't big enough to justify this investment to come through. Um, tech, um, the, the guys in Taiwan have all of these factories, but they don't have demand mm. to keep them running. So it's, it's a difficult thing, and I guess the answer lies in what's going to happen to globalization. Are we going to reverse globalization where everybody produces what they need, or are we going to find some level of compromise where um, we build to scale in some areas in the world, and we all agree that some things are just strategic and, and we can buy from each other? It's, it's a hard question to answer. I don't know if we've got much globalization if one thinks about, you know, the type of licenses that U.S. firms have to get, um, mm-hmm. you know, when they're selling certain products to uh, mm-hmm. their Chinese uh, clients and, and Russian clients and also some mm-hmm. of the, I guess, licensing around exports of, uh, in particular, semiconductors. I mean, even though the Taiwanese uh, uh, industry is saying they've received some mm-hmm. licenses to export into the U.S., mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but all of these for a country that always talks up free trade uh, certainly amount to a lot of restrictions to trade. No, that, absolutely, it's being used as a weapon. That, that's that's the honest truth. So, so, so the U.S. feels the insecurity of having to rely on distributed demand, uh, distributed uh, production, um, and China also understands that this is a bit of power that that its side of the world has. So. It, it will be interesting to see how it pans out because there's something pragmatic that needs to happen here. But the reality is every move that we've seen is reversing globalization. Onshoring is a big trend. Mm. Um, people want to build their own capacity domestically so that they're never threatened. Um, but but that's, that's, that's not very viable because these factories tend to be very large scale and, and they need to drop costs because of this scale. I mean, the scale allows them to drop costs considerably, and, and, that, and, 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 that, and, and that contributes to profitability of these firms. Mm, mm. Mm-hmm. It's only one we're going to be watching quite closely because uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, it makes one wonder uh, what uh, is going to come of this particular tension here. But, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, if, if, if you look, uh, Roy, at uh, some of the things that semiconductors are used for, just for the benefit of some mm-hmm. of our listeners. What, what in essence are we talking about here? I know it looks like a sort of a wafer, but it's mm-hmm. used in so many things across the world. So, so what in our daily life, cell phones, the iPhone. Remember, the iPhone may be an American product, but it's manufactured in Taiwan, China. Little components are all put together. So it's effectively at the heart of our life. Um, cars need um, semiconductors. They need uh, computer chips to run. Remember, it's not like in the old days, and I might be giving away my age here, where you could you could fix your car on the side of the street. Now you need diagnostics and everything because they're also very advanced computers. So semiconductors live in that world, and that's that's the use that that they are. So they're absolutely critical to the running of the world as it stands today, and and that's why they've become such a big. Um, political ping pong and this is the stuff that's produced in very few places i mean the likes of um, yes. so, so, 
So the factories tend to need to be incredibly sterile, incredibly clean. Um, you need some specific um, rare earth um, minerals and, and all of that and some technology to produce it. So Taiwan's been a really big producer. South Korea is a big producer as well. Um, and, other, and, and, and the factories tend to be in places like Asia. But I think the mm. most important thing is these factories tend to need to be incredibly big, really, really big to make sense because they produce large volumes um, and these volumes are required for, for, yeah, for exactly the products that we're talking about. Some supply the car industry, some supply the phone industry, some supply the, um, the, the telephone mast industry and, and all of that sort of thing. Mm, mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, certainly one we're going to be following quite closely there, that um, story, because it's a big part of even Joe Biden's own industrial policy um, mm. and makes one wonder. I guess what might mm-hmm. unfold there. Maybe a last one, Roy, before I let you go. Why, why is the PIC so reluctant to share its list of listed and unlisted investments? You see, this is the thing. They've been through so many scandals and questions and things. You'd think that that's so powerful. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to get this consent. But, but, but I think it's just a level of nervousness because everything right now is very politicized. Um, and, and look, the, the reality is in investing like anything else, people make mistakes or things go wrong. So maybe that's what they're worried about. But in, in this world of um, ESG and governance and everything, I think they should be at the forefront of, of publicizing these things and making them a public record. And so, so what do they mean when they say their clients was first disclosed? I'm just trying to wrap so, my head around that. So, so they are the investor, but they need, they think they need their customers to, their, their clients to come out and tell them, you know what, you disclose that you're investing in us. So to me, it's, look, I understand because in this world of um, prevention of, uh, what do you call it? I mean, dis- dissemination of information and access to information, you need to be quite careful. But the truth is, the PIC invests on behalf of um, all of these um, public sector employees. The, this money is going into private enterprises, rarely ever listed enterprises. Those people need to know where the money is going. So it's it's very difficult to understand why these investments can't be disclosed. Um, I think they're sensitive because of all the problems that they've had, and maybe there's some rationale around that. But in reality, by the time you're advancing capital to somebody, they should be amenable to allow you to to, to think that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eesh. Roy, we're going to have mm-hmm. to leave it here for tonight. It's always a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me, and have a good evening. Roy Motoni speaks to us uh, from APSA Asset Management, where he's an analyst. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, especially, of course, on that story there, because it seems the ghost of the Mbati Commission continues to loom over the Public Investment Corporation.